Thank you, choir, for that wonderful reminder, that positive reminder of Jesus' death and how it impacts our life. Thank you, Jeff, for inviting me back to the pulpit. It's been a couple years. Jeff and I are good friends. And I confided to him a couple years ago. I said, I am overcommitted. I'm preaching in too many different places. And he took me seriously like, hey, I'll lighten your load. And then recently I said, I'm actually starting to enjoy preaching and I'm finding that boundaries. And he turned around a week later and said, can you come back to second and preach for us again? So it's, it's a joy to be back with you. I especially have fond memories of 2020, that summer when we were doing the parking lot services, and I got to fill in and preach at several of those services, looking at you out there in your cars as we continued our worship together. So the sermon title has to do with personal transformation in the season of Lent and the value, the requirement of a supportive community. Did you know Benjamin Franklin? never wrote the book that he most wanted to write. He made most of his money in those early years off of his publishing company and frequently published his own writings as part of his successful publishing. But there was a book he really wanted to write and never wrote and never published. He wanted to write the book on how to attain moral perfection. He had laid out a strategy for himself that he believed was going to work on paper. It looked perfect. It looked like it would obviously work. He had figured out in his life, I have about 12 or 13 vices, bad habits, faulty attitudes that I know I could do better than that. And so what he decided he was going to do was lay out a schedule for himself. And Benjamin Franklin figured on week one, I will tackle my first vice, whatever that bad habit was for him. I'm going to eliminate it from my life. I'm going to take an entire week and dedicate myself to eliminating it. And the way I will eliminate it is I'm going to replace it with a positive virtue. And so he was enthusiastic on week one and said, okay, I'm not doing this anymore. Instead, I'm going to do that. And that is a much better activity for me to participate in. And that went so well that he moved on to week two and said, week two, I'm going to choose a second vice, another bad habit, and I'm going to root it out of my life. And I'm going to add in another virtue, a number two virtue that will be enjoyable for me and will grow me into a better person. And it worked well. And so he had two vices he had eliminated and two virtues he had put into his life through self-discipline and through his, his desire. I'm going to change myself. And he got to week three and tackled, this is the third vice I want to tackle. And now I'm going to replace it with my third virtue. But when he got to week four and he was tackling his fourth vice, he said he began to realize that week one was starting to slip a little bit. And some of those things that he thought he had eliminated were creeping back into his life. And he got to week five when he was trying to work on week five virtue. And now week one, two, and three, some of those vices were creeping back in. And by the time he got to week six and seven, he gave up on the total thing and decided it's just not working. I can't seem to change myself in some of my deepest habits, some of the things I wish were not part of my life, some of the things I wished I could eliminate. They just seem stuck in me. And he never published that book and later wrote about it in his autobiography, his attempt at achieving moral perfection. I suspect Benjamin Franklin could resonate with the depressing writer of Ecclesiastes. Why even try to change? 
Nothing's ever going to change. The sun rises and the sun sets and the seasons cycle back again and the water continues to flow and the ocean and the weather and you name it. It's all the same. It's all the same. It's just the same old thing over and over. Why even try vanity of vanities? All is vanity. I sometimes read the book of Ecclesiastes and I think this guy needs to be on some antidepressants. I don't know what's going on in his life, but that's the most depressing book in the Bible. Why even try? Nothing ever pays off, and I can't make any changes anyway. And then we enter into this thing we called the Lenten season of the year. And we give the official purple colors and make the announcement and start with ashes on the forehead. And we invite people to prayer stations. And here's what the church says to us as followers of Jesus. You can be transformed. Give us these next 40 days of your life. And we will intentionally help you. Our desire is for you to develop more of a spiritual life. Grow closer to Jesus. Eliminate some bad habit or something. If you just take 40 days by Easter, you could experience transformation. And yet all the science and all the medical studies tell us it is practically impossible for a person to change. Years ago, a book came out called Change or Die. And the opening of the book, the author describes and says, studies were done by a group of medical people, doctors, surgeons, a variety of the medical profession, on the theme of how often they have told their patients, you must change something in your life or you will die. What more can I tell you? You've got to change this habit, this pattern. You need better diet. You need to remove the salt from your diet. You need to make yourself some heart-healthy meals. You need to get some more exercise, whatever it may be. Do you know what the success ratio is for people making those kind of health changes, even in dire situations where they know they are facing death if they don't make the change? The results are in. 80 to 90% of people are unable to make the required changes. They unintentionally choose to die rather than change. It's that hard. No wonder Ecclesiastes says, why even try? And then we in the church say, but transformation is possible for followers of Jesus. And for me, the opposite of Ecclesiastes, one of the most hopeful passages in Scripture is 2 Corinthians 5.17. When I first became a follower of Jesus, when I said yes to let him be the leader of my life, your will be done, I will bow before you, you are now in charge of my life, you are my Lord and Savior. I was 18 years old, a college student, and this was one of the very first verses I ever memorized from the Bible 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Let me put it in context by reading verses 16 to 18. Here's what Paul writes to the Corinthians. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Even though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ,
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. Transformation. Let's explore what did Paul mean by that? How do we grow into transformation and become more Christ-like? Let's talk with God. Lord, we've read the scripture. Now we pray, Holy Spirit, that you take it from ink on a page in our Bible and write it into our hearts, whisper to our souls that we might better explore what it means to be new in Christ, a new creation. Grow us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. So I confess to you that I am not a person who enjoys technology. My wife is an early adopter of technology. Whenever something new comes out, she loves it. She wants to get the next computer, the next technological thing, the next gadget for the kitchen. She is a gadgety technological person. I am on the opposite end of the spectrum. Hey, if this worked for past generations, I'm just going to keep. Finally, when I was doing my doctoral studies 40 years ago, she convinced me to get my first word processor. I was convinced I could just type that dissertation on an old-fashioned typewriter, leave me alone. I learned to type in high school. I can still do my typing. I'll do my dissertation. And she said, no, Bruce, use a word processor. I was very resistant. She kept pushing, try the word processor. Use a word processor. Bruce, you'll be amazed. A word processor is so much better. She finally convinced me one day when I realized I had typed an entire chapter into the word processor, and I had a consistent mistake throughout the entire document. I had had the wrong word, the wrong phrase, and I just, I couldn't believe it. Oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to go back through the entire chapter and look for every single place where I typed it wrong and make the correction. And she said, watch this. There's something on your computer called search and replace. What is it that you got wrong? And I told her, it's this phrase, okay? Type it in under search. Now, what that's doing is it's highlighting throughout your document everything that is wrong, wherever it finds that. What do you want to replace it with? I want to replace it with this. Okay, type that in. And then she said, watch this one stroke, and the entire document was corrected. And I was convinced, this is awesome. Reminds me of that pastor of a small little community church that one day as he was getting ready for a funeral thought back and realized, you know, this sister Edna, this elderly widow that died this year, and I'm getting ready to do her funeral, I did a funeral just like, was it a year or two ago for Mary, and I'm using all the same scriptures that I used for a widow Mary, and you know what I could do? I could do search and replace. I'll just title it with the new date, put the, this is in memorial of, and get her name right at the top. And everywhere throughout that I used Mary from the previous, I'm just going to do search and replace and replace it with Edna. It was amazing. One stroke worked perfect, bullet and printed. Everything went well for the memorial service until they got to the Apostles' Creed and the congregation said, Jesus, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Edna. We chuckle to ourselves because we can see how easy it is. Can I tell you that's how I thought 2 Corinthians 5.17 was? 
I thought when I memorized 2 Corinthians 5.17 as a teenager, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation, and Jesus will use on you now the search and replace feature in your life. Any of your bad habits, any of the things that you know are wrong, any of the things you want to repent of and change in your life, Jesus is just going to, with one stroke, because of he died on the cross for your sins, and all your sins are cleansed and wiped away, and Jesus does search and replace. And then I discovered through life that some of my old bad habits and wrong attitudes were just hanging in there like Benjamin Franklin. And I was trying to figure out, well, what's going on? I'm a follower of Jesus. I've released my life to Jesus. I believe in Jesus, my Lord and Savior, but he's not doing the simple search and replace that I thought. That's what that Bible passage means, isn't it? And then I had to start wrestling with the scripture. God, what do you mean when you say, the old has passed away, everything becomes new. We are now a new crea creation in Christ. How does that work? Because it doesn't seem to be search and replace. And I went back and wrestled with 2 Corinthians and began to appreciate the context of his letter to the Corinthians. The context of the entire letter is reconciliation and relationships. All the way through this letter, he's saying we learn to see each other through the eyes of faith and hope and love. We become a new community that encourages each other, that respects each other, that provides for each other. We begin to form a community that is so supportive that we watch each other through the eyes of faith, of faith begin to transform. We become a new creation because we have the support of the community. That's what the medical studies showed. If somebody tries individually, I'm going to change my life. They are set up for failure. But if we create a support community for them, if they have support and encouragement from others around them that share that struggle, that share that journey, that are part of that new life together, then the success rate soars. We need a supportive community. That's what he's saying to the church in Corinth. You can be that kind of church. You can be the supportive community. You can learn to expect better from each other. We can grow into the holy, godly, good life that God has for us, not because we're doing it by willpower or our own strength, but because God is doing a transforming work within us through the support of community that is around us. And as I began to appreciate that, it started changing my life. Church, community, shared life together. Every other Wednesday here at Second Carlisle, I'm part of a justice discussion group. We read various books. We talk about justice issues. How do we speak up on behalf of the voiceless? How do we become an ally to those who are persecuted? How do we take up causes of justice because we follow Jesus? We share prayer together. And in mutual support, we say, we can do better than this in our society. How do we work toward that better, good, just society that we all believe in when we say our Pledge of Allegiance with liberty and justice for all? 
Wednesday, this last Wednesday, somebody in the group asked me a question, kind of a personal question, said, Bruce, how did you get so active in these justice ministries and some of these justice issues? And I had to back up and begin to describe a little bit about my retirement. And I shared briefly with them what I'm going to share with you, and that is, how did I end up in Pennsylvania at retirement? I took early retirement, age 64, and when Kate and I had made the decision to retire, I had said to her, you followed me to amazing ministries in difficult places. We lived in a Native American village up in Alaska. In fact, one of our children was born at home in that village because we couldn't get the flight out to get to a hospital. She followed me and we shared ministry in Sitka, Alaska at Sheldon Jackson College and then at a community in Arizona and finally a mega church in San Diego. And she was always loyal and loving and supportive. And I said, you followed me to my ministries. When we retire, I will follow you. You get the choice. Wherever you choose to retire, I will follow you in retirement. Well, in the meantime, those last few years of my working career, each of our four adult children had moved into the Harrisburg area for various jobs, for girlfriend relationships. They met online and became married. All of those dynamics so that all four of our adult kids and their spouses, all three of our grandchildren are living in the Harrisburg area. Easy choice for her. Where, do, where are we going to retire? I am moving to grandma land. I want to be where grandma can be grandma and we can take care of the kids and help out with the children and be connected with our family. And she loves it. This is, she is so flourished and enjoyed and loves it. And she moved out here 10 months before I did. She bought the home on her own. I said, whatever you buy, I will love. She arranged the home on her own. Whatever you arrange, I will love. I won't touch anything. I'll just walk into the house and I'll enjoy it. And it'll be wonderful. And she moved out here. And I retired and moved here at the beginning of October in 2015. And when I arrived, I thought I could do grandpa land. But what I discovered was I am not wired to be a grandpa 24-7. I could do grandpa duties now and then, and I enjoy having a sleepover with the grandkids, and I can do some, let's go visit a museum, let's go for a hike together, let's go do whatever it may be. I can do grandpa duty, but I was not feeling fulfilled merely as a grandfather here in Pennsylvania. And the thing is, I moved out here with no church, no calling, no sense of purpose, no friendships. And when I arrived, I began sinking into depression. <clears throat> we moved here beginning of October. By mid-November, I knew I was cycling in some pretty negative ways. I wasn't feeling happy. I was getting cranky and lonely. I couldn't seem to make any connections. I didn't know anybody. I texted a friend back in San Diego and I said, not only am I making myself miserable, I am making my wife miserable because I am just so down and so negative right now and so cranky. And, and he picked up the phone and he and I have been good friends for years. Back for 16 years back in San Diego, he and I were part of a group of four men that meet every single week for breakfast. Four Christians that share our lives together over 16 years. 
We've watched our kids graduate from college and get married. We've celebrated the birth of grandchildren. We've gone through sorrows. We've gone through divorces. We've gone through joys. We've celebrated together. We've wept together. We hold each other accountable. I texted him and I said, I am miserable and I'm making my wife miserable. I could picture myself sitting on the front porch someday, waving my fist at the kids in the neighborhood saying, get off of the lawn. <laughs> And I knew that is not who I wanted to be. Jesus wanted better than that for me. And so he picked up the phone and he called me, listened. He said, okay, slow down. You've only been there six, seven weeks now. Here's your assignment for next week. When you visit your next church, we'd been bouncing around looking at churches. When you visit your next church, I want you to stay after church, introduce yourself to the pastor and invite that pastor out for coffee. So I did. Sunday, after church, I told Kate, I'm going to meet the pastor, invite him out for coffee. We went to coffee on Tuesday. He said, you're new in our presbytery? Tell me a little more about yourself. By Wednesday, he had called the presbytery office. By Friday, presbytery office had contacted me and said, have you moved out here permanently now? Yes, I am retired. I'm Are you interested in an interim position? Because one of our churches is interviewing right now. If you get your paperwork to us today, we can get it to them quickly. And just By the following week, I was interviewing with that church and that committee, and by January, I'd been hired as their interim for the next two and a half years. And through that interim position, I started getting connected with presbytery and with council and with committees. And after one presbytery lunch, I'm sitting at a table with this guy named Jeff Gabellius. And he visits with me and asks a few questions, and we share together. And he says, would you be interested in joining a clergy support group? I am looking for community. I'm looking for a clergy support group. He says, I'm going to get you connected. And by the next month, I am part of a clergy support group. Jeff and I now have been in that group eight years together. I had no idea how fulfilling and how supportive and all of the joy and accountability and vulnerability that we would grow in together. Jeff, you are my best friend here in Pennsylvania. God took you from somebody that barely knew me to being this incredible guy that any time he and I can call each other on the phone and know we'll pick up, we'll share with each other, we'll encourage each other, we'll struggle together. It's that kind of supportive friendship because you know what scripture says? Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The question is, do we see each other as new creations? Do we develop those communal relationships of support? Last story. Years ago, I came across a story of a teacher remembering her first year teaching in the classroom. She was a high school English teacher, Mrs. Dougherty. She shares her story that her first year teaching at a high school, she had uh, an okay experience with most of the classes, but there was one class that was out of control. These kids were so difficult, they wouldn't pay attention, they wouldn't listen, they were fidgety, acting up, distracting each other. She couldn't seem to get control of this class, and finally, by the end of the second or third week, she made an appointment with the principal to find out, what do I do with this class? These kids are acting up all the time, and I can't seem to get through to them. I can't seem to get the class under control. So the appointment was made for a Friday afternoon. 
She walked into the principal's office to share her story of, I'm struggling with this one particular class, and sat down across the desk from the principal. But before they could talk, the principal was called out for a crisis emergency. So she sat at that desk waiting for the principal to come back. And she leaned over the desk and began to realize the principal had already opened a folder to that particular English class. She read down the folder reading upside down the names of all of the kids that were in that one class. And then she began to notice a pattern. Next to each of those names was a number, 132, 141. 151, 137, all in the 120s, 130s, all the way up to the 150s. And as she studied those numbers, something turned on in her brain. She got up and left without ever meeting with the principal. And that weekend, she rearranged her schedule and what she expected of the class. Monday morning, she marched into that class and said, from now on, things are going to be different in this class. Let me tell you how it's going to work. When I give you an assignment, you will do that assignment. You will have your homework ready. You'll have it on my desk when I walk in first thing. I want it on my desk. When I ask a question, I expect five hands in the air. And you will know the answer. We will participate in this class in discussions. We will, I have high expectations. When I give you a paper, you will research that paper. You will give me footnotes. You will give me bibliography. That's what I expect in this class. And indeed, it was an amazing year. In fact, at the end of the year, the principal said, I'd like to meet with you and talk about that one English class. Because that turnaround of those students was unbelievable. I've never seen it like that before. She said, well, there's something I need to tell you. Remember the day we made an appointment? Well, you had left a file. I, I know I shouldn't have, but I looked at the file. And when I studied those IQ numbers and realized, no wonder we're having so much trouble. These kids are the gifted kids. Some of these are genius-level kids. They haven't been challenged. They're bored in class. I know how I can get this going. I'm going to lift my expectations and give them the challenge and watch them rise to the challenge. And the principal said, thank you. That's an amazing story. Just one thing. Those were not their IQ numbers. Those were their locker numbers. <laughs> You know, when we come to church, we can either see each other as locker numbers or we can see each other as IQ numbers. We can see each other through faith, hope, and love, a supportive community, and watch us all experience transformation. Let's talk with God. Lord, we thank you that the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians got included in our Bible to remind us of the call of reconciliation and transformation and supportive community that we as a church can become new people, godly people, people that better reflect Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.